Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, Carolyn Wasilewski. But first, your true crime headlines. In Wisconsin, a Beaver Dam man has pleaded guilty to fatally shooting his ex-wife in a plea deal with prosecutors. On Tuesday, 33-year-old Ulysses Medina Espinoza entered the plea to first-degree intentional homicide in Dodge County Circuit Court. He was charged with the March 2019 shooting death of Stacia Hollenshead. The shooting took place at a Beaver Dam residence while Hollenshead and the couple's daughter were visiting her grandparents, Espinosa's parents. Hollenshead was shot 15 times while the girl was in a nearby room. Hollenshead was an assistant state's attorney in DeKalb County, Illinois. She had filed for divorce from Espinosa in 2016, won full custody of their daughter, and filed for a protective order against him the same year. Family members said that Espinosa had been stalking her. The murder was Beaver Dam's first homicide in over three decades. Espinosa will receive a life sentence, but under the terms of the plea agreement, may be eligible for parole and community supervision. Sentencing is scheduled for April 5th. In Montana, a 17-year-old accused of killing a fellow teenager inside a friend's bedroom earlier this month has pleaded not guilty to deliberate homicide. The boy had been charged in the shooting death of 17-year-old Daisy Cheyenne Moore. On December 6th, the boy was allegedly handling his friend's new gun and fired it at Moore when challenged that he would not. A different 16-year-old boy whose bedroom the group was hanging out in told police that he had purchased a semi-automatic pistol on December 5th and that the defendant was with him. The 16-year-old said that he left the pistol's loaded magazine when they left the house to pick up more. Once the group was back in the bedroom, he said, the defendant retrieved the pistol and pointed it at Moore. He then said that Moore jokingly told the defendant that he would not shoot. When police arrived on the scene at around 5 a.m., the defendant asked to be put in handcuffs and said, I killed her several times. The three teenagers had been drinking at the time of the shooting. Police said they later found out that the gun was stolen. Though the boy is being charged as an adult, his name is being protected. The boy can still argue for the case to be moved to youth court. His bail is set at $500,000. A truck driver that killed five bicyclists in Nevada is now facing DUI charges. 45-year-old Jordan Alexander Barson told investigators that he fell asleep at the wheel. Blood tests showed that Barson had nine times an allowable amount of methamphetamine in his system. The flat-faced truck plowed into at least seven bicyclists, trailing a Subaru amid about 20 cyclists making an annual 130-mile ride from Las Vegas through the scenic desert in Nevada and California. Two injured bicyclists were taken to the University Medical Center in Las Vegas, and the driver of the Subaru was also injured. Barson faces 12 felony charges, including driving under the influence and reckless driving. Barson was arrested Wednesday and booked into the Mojave County Jail. 
A man was fatally shot after his vehicle went around an immigration checkpoint in southern New Mexico, the U.S. Border Patrol said. And authorities later discovered that he was wanted in Iowa for murder. It was not immediately known whether the man shot himself or was struck by Border Patrol agents' gunfire when they returned his fire during a pursuit, which ended west of truth or consequences. A female passenger in the car was also taken into custody. No identities have been released and no details were provided on the Iowa homicide. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, Carolyn Wasilewski. But first, a quick break. After you've finished binging your favorite true crime podcast, there's always one lingering question staring you in the face. Now what? Sure, you could slip into a Wikipedia wormhole researching everything about the show, but when your brain or your browser tabs are full to the brim, it might be time to take a breather. That's when I like to clear a few levels of Best Fiends. Best Fiends is the app that engages my brain with challenging but fun puzzle games. The game is simple and fun. The good guys are the bugs and the bad guys are the slugs. Complete the puzzles to defeat the slugs, collecting keys and unlocking new fiends along the way. Like Edward the Mosquito, Brittle the Housefly, Gordon the Scorpion, and my best fiend, Pop the axolotl. One of the things that I love about true crime is that the more you dig into the story, the more layers you uncover. And that's what's great about Best Fiends too. The more I play, the more fun it gets. And with new monthly updates, themed challenges, and holiday puzzles, there's always one more level, and the adventure never gets old. This is my holiday must-play. So the next time you need a break, from the news cycle, or run out of shows to binge watch, download Best Fiends free. You might find yourself wondering how you ever found time for a dull moment before. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already. It's hours of fun at your fingertips and can even be played offline. This game has 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews for a reason. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. The holiday season is upon us, and here at Murder Minute, we're getting into the spirit by indulging in the sights, sounds, and scents of the season. And one thing I made sure to do was update my native deodorant collection with their candy cane holiday scent. I believe that reading labels is key and this year I've been making the switch to more natural products. That's why I use Native. Native deodorant doesn't just block odor better, it's made better using natural ingredients that you can actually recognize, like tapioca starch, shea butter, and coconut oil. Did you know that most deodorants work by using aluminum, which forms a plug in your sweat glands to keep you from sweating? Yeah, that can't be good. That's why Native never uses ingredients like parabens, sulfates, aluminum, or talc. And switching to an aluminum-free deodorant doesn't mean you have to sacrifice on odor protection. Native keeps me smelling and feeling fresh and festive all day long. With over 10 cents, Native has something for everyone. Choose between their most popular classic scents, 
like coconut and vanilla, cucumber and mint, citrus and herbal, and my favorite, lavender and rose. And now their candy cane gift set also makes for a great gift option. And all of Native's deodorants, toothpastes, and body washes make perfect stocking stuffers for everyone on your list. Native is vegan and never tested on animals. So it's not just good for your body, it's good for everybody. And it's risk-free to try. Every product comes with free shipping within the U.S., plus free 30-day returns and exchanges. Shop Native's holiday collection today by going to nativedo.com slash murderminute or use the promo code murderminute at checkout and get 20% off your first order. That's nativedo.com slash murderminute or use the promo code murderminute at checkout for 20% off your first order. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Carolyn Loretta Wasilewski was born on June 12, 1940, in Baltimore, Maryland. Carolyn, or Peaches, as her friends called her, was the oldest of seven children, had beautiful blonde hair, and was a bit of a rebel. In 1954, at age 14, Carolyn joined up with a Baltimore gang called the Drapes. The Drapes had rockabilly hair, wore loose coats and tight pants, as one newspaper described them, and were known to commit petty crimes like stealing cars and racing hot rods. Carolyn was too young to be running around with the Drapes, but she didn't look it. Though she had barely started high school, Carolyn was often mistaken for a woman in her 20s. On November 1, 1954, Carolyn was called as a witness to testify after one of her friends was sexually assaulted. The accused was 45-year-old Ralph Garrett. Carolyn testified against him, and Garrett was brought in for questioning. But ultimately, he was released. A week later, at 6.15 p.m., on Monday, November 8th, 1954, Carolyn told her parents that she was going to meet her friend, 16-year-old Peggy Lamana, who lived in a nearby trailer park. The two girls were going to register for dance lessons at Morrill Park Elementary School. When Carolyn Wasilewski walked out the front door of her family's home at 3121 Mardell Avenue that night, she was wearing a black skirt pink and blue arrowhead-shaped figures, a pink top, and a black corduroy jacket. A black scarf was tied at her neck, and she wore curlers in her hair, covered by a bright green scarf. It was the last time that her family ever saw her alive. Carolyn never showed up at Peggy's, or at the school. When Carolyn didn't return home that night, her parents became worried. They searched for their daughter all night, but there was no sign of Carolyn. The next morning, at around 7 a.m., a train engineer 
spotted something, or someone, up ahead on the tracks. As the train grew closer, his fear was confirmed. There, laying face down on the tracks, just under Baltimore's Belvedere Avenue Bridge, was the half-naked body of a teenaged girl. It was Caroline. Her body was found eight miles from her home. She was covered in bruises and scratches. Her skirt and shoes were missing. And written in lipstick on her right thigh was the name Paul. Journalist Bill Stump, a feature writer for the Sunday Sun magazine, had been on the train that morning. He reported, quote, The train slowed down, and no one knew what the hell was going on. We were diverted to another track, and as we passed, we saw people milling around and Wasilewski's body, covered by canvas. I didn't find out what had happened until we got off the train at Calvert Station and I went into the Sun Papers. Police concluded that Carolyn had not been killed on the tracks. They believed that the killer threw her body from the bridge above or dragged her onto the tracks, perhaps to make it look like an accident. Their theory was soon confirmed when Carolyn's blood-stained shoes and personal items were found not far from her home. An autopsy revealed that Carolyn's cause of death was a skull fracture at around 11 p.m. the night she disappeared. The last train to pass under the Belvedere Bridge was at 10.30 p.m., so Carolyn's body had to have been placed there after. A broken fingernail suggested a struggle, but though her body was found in a state of undress, it bore no evidence of sexual assault. Police interviewed over 300 people, including several of the drapes and Carolyn's friend Peggy. But they soon zeroed in on one suspect. Ralph Garrett, the man accused of sexually assaulting Carolyn's friend and who Carolyn had testified against. Garrett had motive, lived near the scene of the crime, and was allegedly seen talking to Carolyn on the night of her death. On November 10th, 1954, two days after Carolyn's body was found, police found Ralph Garrett's. His car was abandoned outside of town, and his body was found hanging by a belt, near where Carolyn's blood-stained clothing had been found. According to Ralph Garrett's wife, Ralph had been depressed because his mother had recently passed away. The police accepted this as the explanation for Garrett's suicide. They concluded that his death was unrelated to Carolyn's murder. On November 12, 1954, Carolyn's girlfriends carried her coffin 
into St. Peter the Apostle Roman Catholic Church. The burial dress of the blonde high school student was a flowing blue negligee, which completely covered evidence of the brutal treatment which resulted in her death, reported the Evening Sun at Carolyn Wasilewski's funeral. A simple carnation corsage rested on her left shoulder over a sheer lace jacket, and a cameo pendant hung at her neck. In her hands, a shiny rosary reflected the gentle gleam of the flickering candles. Although Carolyn had gained a reputation for living beyond her tender years, the last rites were those for a little girl. Carolyn was buried in Holy Redeemer Cemetery near the grave of her grandfather, and her case went cold. The mystery of who Paul was, or why his name was written on Carolyn's thigh, has never been solved. Film director John Waters was eight years old when Carolyn was murdered, and remembered the news coverage. It was very, this is what happens to girls who hang out with the drapes, he told Broadway in 2008. Growing up in Baltimore, John Waters was fascinated by the drape culture. His 1990 film, Cry Baby, starring Johnny Depp and Amy Locaine, was loosely inspired by the unsolved murder of Carolyn Wasilewski. 66 years after her murder, the case, file number 1625, marked Carolyn Loretta Wasilewski, remains open. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Murder Minute.